Hi, everyone, and welcome to Another Kind of Wealth podcast with me, Lottie Leaf. I'm the founder of the Jura Society, a platform and private client consultancy focused on crafting a deeper connection between wealth and wellness. We aim to inspire and educate women to take control of their financial future. I have the pleasure of being able to speak with some of the best in the business, and now I get to share this with you. So come on in and join us as we hear all about today's topic. Afternoons live. One second. Where is this available? Two seconds. Invite. There we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this afternoon in conversation with today. I am so excited to be joined by Caitlin. <laughs> there she hello. is. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. I've been blinded by this light, but it's quite nice to have a bit of <laughs> light. Um, so just to give everybody a little bit of background on what we're going to be chatting about this afternoon, Caitlin's going to debunk some of the myths around prenups. I mean, there's a lot of talk about them at the moment uh, in terms of the Kardashians. You've got the Gates now. There's a lot of talk about what they are, what they protect you with, how do you get around them, and are they just for rich people? I think that's another key that we need to discuss as well. So, Caitlin, family partner at Milton Reeve, can you give us a little bit of background about you and what you do? Of course. Of course, thank you, and thanks for thanks for the invitation to join, Lottie. It's great to see you. So I'm a, a family lawyer in the family and children team at Mills and Reeve. So I've been a family lawyer for 25 odd years, which basically means I help people who are separating. So whether that's divorcing if they're married or separating if they're living together and not married, with and I help them with all their issues from children arrangements to finances, uh, all the different consequences that arise out of separating. Um, my clients are local in the Cambridgeshire area in London, they're national, they're international as, as the Mills and Reeve client base is. So yeah, it's helping people when the relationship breaks down, but also relevant to today's conversation, helping people at the start of the relationship as well, whether that's cohabitation agreements or, or prenups, which we're going to talk about today. Well, exactly. Thank you. And I think that's really important that a lot of people go into a marriage with the best of expectations. And maybe sometimes they don't think about how to protect themselves should the worst come to happen. And so this is where you fit in. And so to start off with, what is a prenup? Um, and is it the same as a premarital agreement? Yes, they're the same thing. So prenup is the sort of shorthand or the old fashioned terminology. Try, people tend to call them premarital agreements these days, but still slip back into prenups, but they're the same thing. It's, it's basically an agreement that a couple sign before they've got married. Uh, which sets out what they want to happen or the baselines and the sort of framework that they want to apply if the worst happens and if at some point in the future they get divorced. Interesting. Okay, so that's really important. And so in terms of it being ahead of the marriage as well, are there any timelines with that or when, when yeah. should somebody start thinking about it? So I would say as far out as possible. <laughs> if you're planning a wedding and people tend to plan weddings, a year out or maybe even more these days, I would start thinking about the prenup at the same sort of time. Um, we can talk in a minute about how you have that conversation, but it can take quite a long time for people to get their heads around it, to get some advice on it, to think really think through what they want. 
And whilst the guidelines are really that a prenup only needs to be signed no less than 28 days before the actual wedding, the reality is there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And the last thing you want is, is a butting up, up to that 28 day deadline because then the conversations get, get much more difficult. And people should by that stage be really focusing on the fun and the, the delight of the wedding rather than the legal documentation. So rule of thumb, no less than six months to start the conversation at before the wedding, preferably longer. Okay, no, that's really, really helpful. And I suppose with everybody going through, you know, COVID at the moment, they probably had a little bit more time to think before the actual wedding goes ahead uh, about what they can be doing. Um, and so when a client comes to see you, what are the conditions that they're looking at in terms of what you're actually documenting within the prenup? So prenups can cover a variety of different things and, and I can give you some scenarios in a second. I suppose the the baseline is whether a pre the first question clients usually ask is it is it worth the paper that it's written on you know is it worth having a prenup is it binding and the short answer to that is it's not contractually binding as you would think of a, a contract but there is now a presumption and since 2010 so it's been around a long time this presumption there is a presumption that people will be held to a prenup if they've properly entered into it now what does the properly entered into it bit mean well, basically what it means is that people have entered into it without duress. So there's something about not signing it, you know, just before you walk up the aisle and you've actually had time to get advice and think about it. So it's signed without duress, that you understand what you're signing, uh, that it's actually been explained to you, preferably you've had independent advice on it, that people understand what the financial environment is that they're signing up, signing the agreement in relation to. So they actually understand what the finances are and therefore what they might be giving up or not. And the final thing is really that uh, what the case law says is that the prenup is fair or it would be fair in the context of a divorce. Now, fairness, difficult concept in the concept of divorce, pretty, pretty subjective. What that really boils down to is making sure that whatever the prenup covers, that the fairness is such that both parties needs are going to be met. So their needs for housing, their needs for income, their needs for pension and the needs of any children. So it's a kind of catch-all to make sure that you don't have prenups that are so one-sided that the other person is left completely high and dry without any provision at all. So really, as long as those conditions are met, there's a presumption that, that you'll be held to it. And that's what I always say to clients. If you're signing this and you've had advice on it, you should assume you will be held to it. Interesting. So that's a really important topic i guess in terms of who actually has prenups and um yeah why would you have one mm. so lots of different types of people have prenups these days i think it's fair to say 10 or 15 years ago it was the preserve of the, of the mega rich or the or the international people who um have frequently had more prenups than we have these days they are much more usual so i suppose the obvious categories would be intergenerational wealth so if you have some family wealth whether it's in a trust structure or um, through some other sort of family investment company or some other entity and you've got family wealth being handed down in generations in those sorts of family environments it being made very clear by the trustees or the sort of senior members of the family that the junior members of the family or the beneficiaries of trusts are expected to have prenups is much more normal now so there's quite a lot around intergenerational wealth and wealth being handed on because people tend to regard themselves as the custodian of the family money rather than it being theirs. So I suppose that's one obvious category. Another obvious category tends to be what I'd call the sort of second time around us. So people who, if you have two people who are getting married and they've already been married and they've already been divorced, maybe they have their own children, 
then they're getting um, and they're marrying for the second time it's fairly logical that those those both of that couple might say well what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours and I want my money to go on to my adult children we're later in life we're getting together but if something goes wrong I would like it to go to my adult children so that's quite common and then I suppose the third key category is people who've built up their wealth before the marriage so self-made businessmen for example who spends 10-15 years building up an extremely successful business very valuable at the date of the marriage then getting married that sort of person may want to to categorize that that asset already built up during the before the marriage as, as being treated differently if there's a divorce so those are the kind of headline areas i suppose that's really okay so in terms of this is like a curveball question here but if you can you do sort of like protection against potential future earnings or something like that you know where it's like you're expecting that you might grow a lot of wealth later because you're really ambitious but actually you still want that to be yours could you ring fence that yes you can and, and again subject to the other party's needs being met and it not being completely skewed too much one way i mean it does need to be to be fair um, you can and you end up do provide in prenups for sort of future events so that might also include the birth of a child for example will that change the arrangements if there's a birth of a child or also going back to the multi-generational bits somebody might have already inherited some money at the time of the marriage but there's an expectation they're going to inherit more when another relative dies and so you would anticipate what other additional funds are going to fall in and try and anticipate what you're going to do with that so there is a bit of prediction of the future in a, in a prenup and they, they can be, depending on the, there's no one sort of set way of having a prenup because it does depend on what the situation is. Is it a second time around? Is it somebody with a really good business already, but big plans for the future? Is it trust assets and, and intergenerational wealth? Because what you then do and what you're trying to protect can be quite different. Interesting. So it's almost kind of like an inverse will is <laughs> in a way. Yeah, it is. And, and often what you're saying is uh, often there's something to protect already. And so often um, a premarital agreement is, is can be a lot less specific than people would expect. I think people assume a prenup might be a bit Californian. You know, it might cover. Well, sometimes people assume it's going to cover how, what they're going to do during the marriage. You know, who's going to take the bins out, that sort of thing. And English <laughs> prenups, you know, don't cover that sort of thing. It's about talking about what might happen if the worst happens on the divorce. And some prenups, you do have a kind of, I'll keep this specific asset, or if we've been married five years, you'll get this percent, or 10 years, you'll get this percent of the wealth. But a lot of prenups are around principles and, and, and uh, setting out the, great, the ground rules, I suppose. This is my business. I brought it into the relationship. If we split up, then we're going to ring fence that. But if we buy property together, or we invest in things jointly, or we take money out of the business to do a new business jointly, or we uh, create something new or buy a home, then that sits in a, in a category that's different and we will share that. So- mm, And that it, links in as well with that, um, what was it, pet knocks? Yes, exactly. <laughs> who's who's gonna have the dog? Very sticky issue. <laughs> so yeah. you can cover those sorts of things. You don't tend to cover the arrangements for children. I suppose that's the other thing that you'd leave out of, you wouldn't mm. specify in a prenup. You wouldn't say in a prenup, and if we have children, and if we divorce, then this is what we'll do specifically with the arrangements of those children, because that would depend on the circumstances of the time and, and what's in the best interest of the children. So it's broadly financial and probably some theory around pets, perhaps. <laughs> no, that's really cool. So what, um, 
what do they tend to cover? I know that we've sort of given that it's quite broad, but does it take into consideration, you know, length of service? Like, can the, you know, uh, courts or anything sway whether or not because of length of service or because of the amount of wealth or anything like that that's accrued during the relationship? Would that have any impact on what was written out at the start? Yes, I suppose that's the sort of crystal ball gazing element of trying to understand what a party's circumstances are. So, for example, if you had somebody who wanted to prenup who had a business already, but that was one business, but they had plans for business B and business C and business D, then you, you may well have a series of, uh, of eventualities covered in the prenup around, well, we're going to protect this business because this is what we have at the time. But we accept that businesses B, C and D will be dealt with differently. And this one might be mine still as well, because I'm putting the money in for that one. But this one we're investing in jointly. So, yes, we will perhaps uh, share that one equally or, 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 or work out what we want to do at the time. So there is quite a lot of crystal ball gazing based on what people are actually trying to achieve. I think that's the fundamental. Different people are trying to achieve yeah. different things. So you can you can. Uh, either deal with it by way of specific assets or sometimes by way of, as you say, length of service, as it were. So if we divorce <laughs> in the first five years, then you and I are getting married, Lottie. I didn't know you, didn't think you knew that. You know, if we divorce in the first five years. <laughs> so if we, if, exactly. If we divorce in the first five years, then we'll do this. If we divorce in the first 10 years and we have children, then we might do something different because we would have to prioritise what happens to the children. So, okay. yes, you do need to sort of think through. But again, it's all about what you're trying to protect, but also making sure that you meet this baseline of ensuring that everybody's needs are met and that minimum provision. Because where a prenup won't stick and where a court might get involved if there was a problem later in the marriage is if the prenup is almost too one-sided and somebody would be left without their basic needs being met they have nowhere to live because the prenup gives them nothing and they have none of their own they have no income because the prenup does nothing and they're not earning and they have no pension provision because the prenup does nothing and they have no means so you've constantly trying to strike the balance in the prenup between what the client trying to achieve and what they're trying to protect but also what's going to be fair and reasonable and actually going to going to work because you want a prenup that will stick and work and be upheld if there were a problem in the future Interesting. Okay, so it's really a way to document sort of trigger events to make sure that it is fair at the outcome, but you are still retaining some control over your assets should the worst come to the worst. And that's another thing. Are you able to trigger um, almost if he does this, then it's null, or if she does this, then it's not relevant? I don't know what that phrasing would be, but you know, if, for bad behaviour, you know. Yeah, so there's a couple of bits in there. There's the bad behaviour bit, or there's a sort of practical review um i deal with both i suppose the bad behavior bit broadly no sometimes people do want to if we divorce after five years and it's your fault you know you've you've had an affair or whatever based on some sort of fault base then there'll be a penalty for that that rarely works in a prenup mainly because actually in the context of what would happen in a court which is your sort of backdrop of influencing therefore what you put in your prenup a court won't penalise, if you're talking about a divorce without a prenup, a court won't penalise somebody for the reason for the breakdown of the relationship. And if a court wouldn't do it without a prenup, then broadly, 
you'll very rarely see it appear in a prenup because it, it's just inconsistent with what a court would do. I suppose the other bit that's slightly different, it's not a sort of wrongdoing bit, but some prenups, or there's often a discussion when you're talking about prenup, is whether you have a review clause. So whether you say, this is what we're going to do, but for example, if we have a better child, then we'll review the terms of our prenup at that stage. Or if I do inherit more money from the family trust, then we'll have a review at that stage. And it's, it's always, my personal preference is often to end up is to not have a review because and to try and make it an agreement that will work in a very broad range of scenarios. Because the problem with having a review clause is if you say we'll have a review when we have a baby and then you don't do a review, what happens to the prenup? It, it, it can undermine it just simply because people don't follow it through. So whilst it looks a bit logical to say, well, we'll, we'll set this up for now, we'll review it in certain circumstances that can actually just make more difficulties where there aren't any because people don't really want to keep having a prenup what happens if we divorce discussion every yeah. three or four years yeah and i guess bringing up that conversation on a you know a periodic basis is probably a little bit um you know it's taking the, the lust out of, of love um in a way if you keep reviewing it particularly like, oh, have you been good over the last five years yes okay well we'll keep going with that view or oh i'm a bit uncertain now so maybe i'm going to keep these assets and you can have the dog now exactly yeah. the worst yeah. kind of performance review that you could imagine <laughs> particularly yeah, exactly. particularly if the trigger event is that somebody's just had a baby you know you have your worst kind of performance review just after you've had a baby so difficult so that's why often mm -hmm. you try and foresee things and perhaps deal in principles rather than necessarily sort of pound shillings and pence. So uh, you en envisage making sure that somebody's, uh, whilst some assets may be ring-fenced, that other things are in the pot in the middle that will look after people. Yeah, that really makes sense. And that brings us on really, really smoothly to how do you bring these up to start with? I know we're saying six months ahead of a marriage, perhaps, you know, you're all happy, la, 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 la. Um, hey, babe, I just need you to sign this what but i love you you know well, how does it <laughs> going to be together forever Lottie. yeah ever and ever <laughs> exactly it is often the hardest bit um mm. I, again i suppose it depends on the circumstance so if you've got a prenup where you've got this intergenerational wealth and you've got the trustees uh saying to all beneficiaries when you get married we expect a prenup that's often easier because then better beneficiary can can blame the more senior members of the family to their fiance and say look we all have prenups. That's how it works around here because we're beneficiaries of this family money. So sometimes you can use that kind of that, that reason. And some families now who have really big families with intergenerational wealth have family constitutions or, or sort of yeah. setting out how, how they do stuff around here. And sometimes that, that can say in the family constitution and if beneficiaries get married, then they, they'll have prenups. So you can sort of blame the older generation, perhaps, in that scenario. In the second time around uh, type example, it can be easier because it's quite mutual. So it's not one sided. It's one person saying, look, I've got this money and I know you've got that money and you've got your kids and I've got my kids. So there's a sort of mutuality about it, which makes it a much more natural and easy conversation for that person to raise. But in the vast majority of cases, you're right. Somebody's got to pick their moment. I suppose when I'm talking to people about how they raise it or advisors like you, how do I raise a prenup? I think the, 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 the various things I'd say, one is to make sure that they know it's pretty normal these days. So yeah. I know that a prenup, you know, 20 years ago when you got married might not have been normal, 
elderly, old, older person, but now they really are. So they're really normal. We see lots of them. Secondly, it's obviously not to do with anything about the specific marriage. This is not a, you know, a blight or a casting aspersions upon the relationship with these people. It, it's just reality that relationships do go wrong. And then the third thing I think is to do it in a very financial, practical way. You're getting married. We need to sit down as a financial advisor with you, your financial planner, to work out what life's going to look like once you're married. You'll need a new will because when you get married, you need a will. If you haven't got one already, if you've got an existing will, you need to update your will, otherwise it'll be invalid. And given your financial circumstances, it'd be sensible to think about a prenup. That sort of- So you can up. push it back onto the professional to lead the conversation perhaps, to take the onus off you thinking, oh God, if it ends, you know, I don't want to lose my money, but actually it's, okay, Lottie says you have to do this. And then I go, exactly. sorry. Exactly. So, or we need to sit down with Lottie. She's my financial wizard um, or wizardess. And we need to look at what we're going to do jointly with our money during our marriage. We've got to sort out the legal admin. We need wills. And we ought to think about a prenup because you're bringing this to the marriage and I'm bringing that. That's easier than, here you are, darling, there's a document to sign. Um, yeah. And actually, the other thing is... <laughs> the engagement. <laughs> which never goes well. The other thing I would say is I tend to do the documentation bit at the end. If I'm having a conversation with a client or, or, or to, to another solicitor about a prenup for a couple, I tend to keep it quite bullet point at the start. What are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to protect? Let's try and set that out literally five to 10 bullet points in an email. See if we've got a measure of agreement about that. If we haven't, amend it, adjust it until we have got a measure of agreement and then get all the boilerplate legal stuff in the agreement later. Because then when they see the boilerplate, long document, all sorts of other stuff, you know, all the legalese that the lawyers love to put in, then at least mm -hmm. there's a measure of agreement about what it should be saying. It's just trying to document it. So I think there's some practical stuff the lawyers can really do to help as well with that conversation. Yeah, I think that's definitely, it's phrasing it and, and framing it in a constructive way and not this is basically a receipt for our marriage. <laughs> absolutely and i think lawyers and other advisors particularly lawyers who who often in a divorce context you're operating in a relatively adversarial world or at least you're trying you're trying to get people to to agree even a divorce context but it's so much more of a sensitive stage if you're talking to somebody who's getting married in six months time how you have that conversation with your own client never mind how that client has a conversation with their, their soon-to-be spouse you've got to really work hard at saying look I know you don't want to look down this avenue and I'm not for a minute suggesting your relationship is going to get into these difficulties, but my job is to, is to make sure you're going into this with your, with your eyes open. So it's, it's quite a sensitive and different way of talking about things uh, than it is if you're talking to somebody who's actually going through a divorce, different sensitivities. Yeah, oh, 100%. And when it comes to actually um, the contractual binding uh, of the agreement, I know that some people, as we mentioned, say, oh, it's not worth the paper it's written on. But it definitely gives a sway to the courts, doesn't it? Um, Absolutely. And I don't know if you can explain a little bit more about sort of the pro of that. Yeah, so the, um, as I say, there's this presumption. If you've, if you've gone through the right processes and had the right conversations and both of you had independent advice on the agreement, there's a presumption you'll be held to it. And so and most of the time, therefore, when people do get divorced, the, the, the prenup sticks, you know, that's what they do. Or even if you haven't quite predicted everything and you have to you do then have to be have a row or a discussion about some aspects that haven't quite framed as as you expected in the prenup it really narrows the areas of disagreement so 
if it sticks, then you've, you've ruled out the need for a very difficult and, and costly and time consuming process, how the divorce and the finances will happen. If it doesn't quite stick, you've narrowed the issues enormously. So it makes that conversation more easily, more easy, easier even. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's where we're at at the moment. There are, there were some suggestions that uh, there was a law commission report back in 2014, I think it was, that suggested that we should go that extra step in English law and make prenups binding, contractually binding, by broadly going through similar steps to that which we go through now, but having a sort of qualifying nuptial agreement that would be absolutely contractually binding. That would be the next step for, 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 the, for, for the next change in English law. But it was only a law commission recommendation. It was back in 2014. It hasn't been brought into effect. And we're not really getting the sense there's much political appetite to, to, to you know, bring around legislation to make that change. So we're at this presumption stage rather than completely contractually binding. But it's still pretty effective, I have to say, and much better than it was 10 or 15 years ago. People really can rely on them. Okay, that's good. And then one other quick point is, in terms of international elements, do you have to have, you know, like a, a mirror will or something like that when you've got multi-jurisdictions involved, maybe you've got assets in, you know, Switzerland, you've got some in the States, how would it work in terms of governing your international asset base? A very good question, because that's where prenups become really complicated. Um, yeah. Each jurisdiction has a different attitude to prenups, so I'll just explain what happens in, in the law of England and Wales. Other jurisdictions... Uh, they go about them differently because their divorce law is different. And so if you have an international couple who are living, going to make their marriage, get married in England, make their lives in England, but one of them's from California and one of them's from France, and they, as an international couple, as people tend to do, may move around the world and live in different jurisdictions, you do often end up uh, deciding where the main agreement's going to be, and that's not probably an English prenup, but you need both... French advice or European advice on, on, on the particular European jurisdiction and Californian advice as well as to whether there's either anything else you need to put in your English prenup to make it sort of waterproof, watertight in the other countries or whether you simply, the clients agree that if they do move jurisdiction, they take their English prenup with them but then have a sort of postnuptial agreement during the course of their marriage if they move back to California. So you're right, that whole international layer adds another sort of complexity to the matrix of what you're trying to cover off really um yeah. but we, we do a lot of that and it, the key is actually having really good international family law friends that you can make sure you're getting the same sort of pragmatic yet sensitive advice and i'd say if you think about a prenup six months out in a uk scenario english scenario you should think about it even further out if you've got that international dimension because getting that international advice and people having time to digest it and, and adjust can take longer. Brilliant. I've just had a question pop up actually on that. So um, would English courts uphold an international prenup that is binding in the country where it was agreed? So as often with family law, I'm afraid, because it's a very discretionary area, the answer is it depends, which I find infuriating because I like giving people very clear advice. It depends. It depends. Frankly, it depends on uh, how, what the prenup was and what provision it made. Uh, it would certainly be very influential in this country. It would be influential. But I suppose the overview advice would be there would still be this. Actually still meet people's needs. So it would be very influential. 
would it be absolutely upheld? Not necessarily, but it would be very uh, influential on the outcome and it could, it could stick if it provides for people adequately enough for the English court satisfaction. Mm, yeah, <laughs> open to interpretation, I guess. Yeah, and I think if somebody mm. is concerned about that, then perhaps would they think about doing a post-nup in the UK, perhaps? Absolutely, yeah, and post-nups post does what it says on the tin. It's a similar sort of agreement, but signed after you've got married. Same sort of rules, presumption that be upheld. Really useful in that intergenerational scenario. So you do a prenup and you get married and then somebody hands on a lot more money from family wealth later in the marriage and having a post-nup at that stage to reiterate or, or slightly change the approach could be really useful. Um, so yeah, a post-nup post is also another sort of useful tool in the toolbox really. Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you so much. I realise we've been chatting away for nearly half an hour here. This is great. <laughs> it's a really, really interesting topic. So before we um, close down, I just wondered, Caitlin, can you give us your three top tips for how somebody should approach prenups? So I suppose the first thing I'd say is don't rule it out automatically. Do give it a long, hard think, particularly if you're in those sorts of categories that we've sort of discussed. The second thing I'd say is think about it a long way out. It, it's a disaster if you only think about it four, six, eight, ten weeks before a wedding. It just makes the conversation so much more difficult. So think about it a long way out. And I suppose the third thing I'd say, maybe I would say this, but I would say make sure you get some advice from a family lawyer who actually does a lot of these sorts of things uh, because it is quite specialist. And that whole sensitivity about making sure you have the conversation in a helpful and constructive way, but still get the advice is really important, I think. That's really, really wise advice. Thank you. Um, so before we say goodbye as well, Caitlin, where can we find you and anybody who wants to follow up and have a conversation with you and to learn more about what you do, where can we find you? So uh, the obvious source, I suppose, would be the Mills and Reed website, which is uh, you can find easily. Uh, the other thing I would say is I've set up a thing called the Family Law Vlog. So I'm the Family Law Vlogger on YouTube. Uh, set it up a couple of years ago because I realised there were no nobody vlogging on family law issues at all in the UK at that stage. So um, have a look at me on there if you want to see more of the of the face, the ugly face, uh, <laughs> and lots of other sort of uh, there's some webinars on there and there's some short videos on lots of different topics, including prenups. So the family law vlog, and if you go to the the Mills and Reeve website, you'll also find you'll see my phone number, contact details, email address, etc. Well, I'll, I'll share those details with everybody as well, and. Um... Thank you so much, Caitlin. That has been so informative. I will follow up, share all of your wonderful words of wisdom and hope that nobody has to, you know, have a disaster when it comes to getting married and that they've all got everything wrapped up nice and neatly. Um, so it helps with no stress later on. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much for this afternoon. It was lovely to see you. And thank you, everybody, for joining in as well. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to chat. Thank you. Lovely to see you. See you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. thanks so much for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as we did if you can think of anybody else who would benefit from listening too please share it with them using the social media buttons on this page and don't forget to like and subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes too for further resources make sure you're following us on instagram at the Jura society and don't forget to sign up to our quarterly newsletter, The Wealth and Wellness Edit, where you'll be the first to gain access to our in-person talks, events, and much, much more. Until next time, see you later. 
Bye-bye.